everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Elizabeth Hogston, and I started serving here at Citizens as an ministry intern back in September, and recently I started leading the college ministry in February, so um, these days I've been getting to know a lot of the college students. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like I'm back in college, which is really fun. Um, and it is my privilege today to bring us the word. We are in the second week in our new sermon series in Ruth. So if you weren't here last week or you missed the message, I encourage you to go back and listen to um, Jason's sermon from last week. It was a very powerful word and also a really helpful introduction to Ruth in the context of this book that we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. Um, both here on Sundays and also our community groups are doing Bible studies during the week. Um, so just to... Uh, refresh our memories. Last week, um, Jason preached on the first five verses of uh, chapter one, and it's a very um, kind of tragic, concise story that starts this book. So Naomi, this Israelite woman, Naomi and her family move from Israel to Moab because there's a famine in Israel. So they move in the hopes of, to, of surviving and thriving in a new place. Um, but unfortunately, the opposite happens, and Naomi's husband and her two sons all die within 10 years. Um, so she loses all of her significant relationships, and um, she's left as a widow alone in this patriarchal society, which means that she's extremely vulnerable in a foreign land. Uh, and the only relationships she has now are her two foreign daughters-in-law, her two Moabite daughters-in-law. Uh, Ruth 1.5 puts it very bluntly, the woman was left without her two sons, and her husband. It's a very stark, bleak intro to this book. Um, and as Jason said last week, it seems like it should be the end of the story, but it's actually just the beginning of the book of Ruth. So today we're gonna continue in chapter one. We're gonna read the rest of chapter one, um, starting in verse six. And just to, as a warning to those of you in community groups, you know, this is a long passage. I might not be able to touch on every question that came up in your inductive Bible studies this week, but I'm sure Jason would love to answer any remaining questions. <laughs> just, you can also ask me. I might not know the answer. Um, anyway, so let's go to chapter one, verse six. I'm going to be reading from the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Then she, Naomi, started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law. And they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, so it was a kiss goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. So she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. 
Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, call me no longer Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Naomi finds herself in the most shameful position a woman could be in in that time. She has no husband and no sons. And not only does she not have a husband or sons, but she had them and she lost them. That's incredibly shameful. People in that time would assume that she had done something wrong and that God was punishing her. Naomi also finds herself in a powerless situation. In the patriarchal society of that time, a woman without any male protectors or providers basically had no value and no security. So Naomi is left completely vulnerable as a widow, as an immigrant. In the beginning of this story, she's in a foreign society with two foreign daughters-in-law as her only significant relationships. Who will stop people from taking advantage of her? There's no one to protect her. Yet in verse 6, we start to see some glimmers of hope. Because first, Naomi hears that the Lord had considered his people. The famine in Israel has ended. And this is very significant in the Old Testament. Things like famines and um, you know, plagues are a sign of God's favor. And so it's showing that God has not forsaken his people. He's providing food for them. So that's a great sign. And then Naomi decides to return to Israel, which shows us that there's still this resilience left in Naomi. She's not giving up. She's going to do what she can to better her situation. There's the sense of a new beginning in verse 6, start of a new journey. Anything can happen. And lo and behold, at the end of the chapter, Naomi and Ruth safely arrive in Bethlehem. So this is pretty significant to me because who knows what dangers they may have faced along the way. The story doesn't tell us, but Jason was talking about Judges last week and how it's like Game of Thrones. <laughs> if you want to just get a snippet of that, you should read Judges 19, the story of the Levite's concubine. Um, I'm not going to go into the details right now because it's pretty disturbing, but I'm just going to say that it paints a very bleak picture of the dangers of traveling at that period. It was not safe to travel, even within Israel, even with a male companion, much less to travel without a man, with another woman of a different nationality, between nations. They would have been very vulnerable, completely at the mercy of whoever they ran into along the road, um, vulnerable to being taken advantage of in numerous ways, rapes, trafficked, you name it. But they make it safely to Bethlehem. They make it. And yet it's not a happy homecoming. It's one marked by shame. Because the first thing people notice about Naomi is that she's alone. Naomi can't hide this. She can't escape it. Her husband and her sons are not with her. Verse 19 says, the whole town is stirred because of them. And the women say, is this Naomi? You know, it's only been 10 years since Naomi left, so I don't think it's the fact that they couldn't recognize her face, 
More likely, they're taken aback because when she left, she was a wife and a mother, and now she's by herself. In that culture, a woman was defined by her relationships to men. Women were either daughters, wives, or mothers. So who is Naomi now that she has no husband and no sons? Well, Naomi is clear about this. She renames herself here at the end of the chapter. She renames herself bitter. Um, and it's funny because we just did a whole sermon series on the names of God and talking about the significance of names and how, what they say about us. So Naomi makes it very blunt. Um, you know, her name used to mean pleasant. She's like, don't call me that. That's not who I am. I'm bitter. This is pretty strong language. It's kind of like someone going around saying, call me traumatized which would be a little weird. Most of us who've been through difficult things, we don't want to be defined by them. Most of us probably don't even want people to know that they happened. But you know, at first I was like, wow, Naomi really doesn't care what people think of her. Um, but I think part of this is that she just can't hide her bitter circumstances. Everyone can see she's alone. Everyone can see she's carrying this shame. It's blatantly obvious to everyone that she's a woman forsaken by God. So in this speech at the end of the chapter, Naomi basically just says what they're all thinking. God is against me. She says, yes, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. As you can see, God has not been good to me. By taking away her husband and her sons, God has put this scarlet letter of shame on her. In verse 21, she says, the Lord has dealt harshly with me. That can also be translated, the Lord has testified against me. This is very strong language. And I think it's pretty different from how we in the church often handle hardship. There's this phenomenon in Christian culture where we try to turn every difficult situation into a positive. You know, there's all these famous platitudes like, God works in mysterious ways. This is just a setup for the breakthrough. Or when God closes a door, he opens a window. And you know, I think there's some truth to these statements, but we can kind of apply them too liberally sometimes and say them a little too easily. Um, as Christians, we're generally not great at sitting in brokenness and pain, at simply acknowledging difficulty like Naomi does. We like to tie it up with a little ribbon. And that, in that sense, I think there's actually something we can learn from Naomi here. We don't always have to force ourselves to be positive. Having faith is not the same thing as being positive. We see this in the book of Job as well. You know, Job cries out to God, why are you doing this to me? And he never curses God, but he complains and he questions God. And God at the end commends Job and says he's faithful. Having faith doesn't mean, you know, putting on a happy face. It means persisting in acknowledging God and turning toward him. Here, Naomi continues to acknowledge God. She calls him Yahweh. She calls him the Almighty. And you know what? Naomi is in a very difficult spot. So she has reason to be bitter and to... Um, maybe even complain. She's carrying a lot of pain, and it's good that she can verbalize that. But I think there's something very crucial that o Naomi overlooks in this passage, and that is Ruth. Because you know what? Naomi is not actually alone. She says here that she's empty, but she's actually not. She has lost a lot, but she's not empty. She actually has this amazing woman, this amazingly loyal, passionately committed daughter-in-law named Ruth with her. And Ruth has just made one of the most fervent, profound proclamations of faithfulness of anyone in the entire Bible. It's a very famous passage, right? 
Where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. Where you die, I'll die. You can't get any more committed or fervent than that. But you know why I think Naomi overlooks Ruth? It's because of the values of the society that they were living in. Men were worth more than women. Women barely mattered. They only mattered in relation to men. And Ruth was not only a woman, but she was not even an Israelite. She was a Moabite. So Ruth was a foreigner, a woman, and like Naomi, she no longer was associated with any man. She didn't have a husband. Her husband had died. She didn't have any children. Ruth was basically nothing in society's eyes. Naomi needed a husband or a son or even a father. Ruth was none of those things. And so um, she completely overlooks her. But spoiler alert, at the end of this book, in chapter four, it's one of my favorite, personal favorite verses in the book, um, all the women of the town say, wow, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. And it's just this beautiful moment where Ruth is like recognized, like that's a huge statement, better than seven sons in that culture. Um, so I love that. At the end of the book, people will recognize Ruth's value. But here in chapter one, Naomi completely overlooks her. She's like, I'm empty. And meanwhile, Ruth is standing right next to her. She's given up everything for her. But you know what, not only does Naomi overlook Ruth and the value of this amazing woman who's promised to stay with her for the rest of her life, you know what else Naomi overlooks? She overlooks herself and her own value. If you look back at verse eight in the exchange between Naomi and her daughters-in-law where she tells them to turn back, Naomi makes it very clear that she believes she is worthless to them. She believes the only thing of value that she could give them is a man. In verse 11, she, said, she says, why would you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that may become your husbands? She goes into all this detail about the harsh realities of why it's impossible for her to produce husbands for them, as if Orpah and Ruth are unaware that she's old. They know that she doesn't have any more sons. They know that she doesn't have any hope of having any more sons. They know she's too old to get remarried and that even if she could miraculously get remarried and pregnant, by the time those babies grew up, it would be too late for them to marry them. Ruth and Orpah do not set out on this journey with Naomi because they're hoping for husbands. They're going because they love her. You know, the scene is actually very touching. There's a lot of weeping, a lot of protesting. Um, it's clear that a bond has formed between these women. If not before, then certainly through this tragedy that they've all been through together. And in verse 13, Naomi says, the hand of the Lord is against me. Like, it's this bitter, you know, kind of hopeless statement. But it's also this act of love where she's like, I'm cursed. Don't stay with me. Like, I'm a sinking ship. Just go save yourselves. Like, even in this act of turning away, I see her love for these women. But it's just sad to me that she doesn't realize that there's something worth loving. There's something worth sticking with in her. As a widow in that culture, Naomi carried a stigma of sh this shame of being worthless. And even worse, she carried a stigma of being cursed, forsaken by God. That's how she saw it, and that's how the people around her saw it. I can relate to this stigma a little bit because I'm a single woman in my mid-30s, which is maybe not quite as tragic as losing your husband, but often in the church, Despite Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness is better than marriage, and despite the fact that Jesus himself, our greatest role model, was single, in the church, singles are often regarded as of lower status than married people. 
People may not say it out loud, but singles are often viewed not as worthless, but as worth less. In society generally, singleness can already carry a stigma. It's like, why hasn't anyone chosen to be with you? Or what's wrong with you that you're so immature that you don't want to settle down? Something must be wrong with you that you're still single. In the church, however, another painful layer of judgment is added to this. Because in the church, we believe that marriage is a gift from God. So the implicit question becomes, why has God overlooked you and not given you this gift? Just like people looked at Naomi and thought, what did you do wrong that God took away your husband and your sons? I sometimes feel people looking at me and judging me. And just like Naomi concluded, God is against me. I sometimes look at how all my friends that I grew up with are now married with multiple children and I'm still alone and I wonder why is God not blessing me? Why has God overlooked me? Has he forgotten me? It's easy to interpret our circumstances based on the way that society sees. It takes work to question the narratives that are handed to us and to remember how God truly sees us or to find out how God truly sees us. Without in intentionally questioning and combating the false narratives, we all too easily take on stigmas that others give us, particularly ones that align with the insecurities or fears hiding in our hearts, such as the fear that God doesn't actually love us, or perhaps that he loves us less than other people, or perhaps the, the lie, the fear that maybe we're just not lovable or worthy of love. It's easy to just accept these lies, the, these stigmas, the these shame, shame that God has never put on us. Because here's a question. Would God have commanded us to look after widows so many times in the Bible if he didn't care about them, if they were cursed, if he had taken away their husbands as a way of punishing them? Is singleness really a curse in God's eyes? Is infertility a curse? I do believe marriage is a blessing from God, but does that mean singleness is a curse? And children are certainly blessings from God, but does that mean infertility is a curse? In this passage here in Ruth 1, God is silent. We don't hear his perspective on anything that's happened. And this is pretty true to life. We often feel distance from God in our suffering. But sometimes when God is silent, it's helpful to go back and read or remember what he has said. And there's this passage in Isaiah 56 that God has spoken to me through many times where God is speaking very clearly to us, another seemingly forsaken group, a group that carried a huge stigma in the Old Testament, and that is eunuchs. So eunuchs were men who couldn't have children. It's basically the male equivalent of a barren woman. And I've been saying repeatedly how women were of so little value in society. Well, eunuchs were the lowest of the men um, because even now, I think male infertility carries the stigma of like being less of a man. But back then, bearing children to carry on your name was everything. They didn't care so much about the afterlife, actually, as much as gaining immortality through having children. Without children, your name dies. So it would seem like eunuchs are cursed. They're forsaken by God because they can't have children. Their name is destined to die. But in Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5, God says this. He says, do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, 
who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In that culture, having children was everything because children were what brought you honor. But here, God promises to honor the faithful eunuchs himself. God promises them everlasting names better than sons and daughters. Basically, God is saying society may see you as a dry tree, worthless, cursed, but I see your faithfulness to me, and that is everything. I see the way that you honor me with your life. I see it, and I honor you in return. Sometimes, like Naomi, we interpret our circumstances as signs that God doesn't love us, or maybe that he doesn't love us at all, but that he loves us less than other people. But what if our circumstances don't tell us as much about God's view of us as we think? What if it's not the circumstance itself that matters as much as the choices we make with the circumstances we have? There was one night several years back when I was feeling particularly upset about being single. It was some time after I turned 30, and I was just crying about it and crying out to God about it. And basically what I was saying to God is, you know, I am living my life for you. I had felt this call to move to Korea, so I had moved continents for God. You know, I had given up my first love besides Jesus, which was classical music. I gave up that life to pursue this life of just following God, giving everything I had for Jesus. And yet I was like, God, you know that I've always wanted to be married and all my friends are married and I'm still alone. Does all that I've done for you mean nothing to you? Why have you overlooked me? And, you know, I didn't really expect to hear an answer from God. Just a side note, um, I actually am a big proponent of crying in itself, the healing power of tears. Pretty sure they've done some scientific studies on it as well, like the chemicals that are released. Sometimes you just need to, like, cry it out, you know, and it just brings some relief and healing in and of itself. So I was just crying, crying it out before God, and there's a freedom in that. Um, but then this word popped into my head, Beulah. And I was like, wait, is that a word? Is that a name? I don't know what that is. And I was like, is God speaking to me? And I was like, no, that's dumb. But <laughs> um, I was like, but I can picture how it's spelled. And I'm just going to Google it and see if it's in the Bible. So <laughs> I Googled it, and it is in the Bible. It's in Isaiah 62, verse 4, which says, No longer shall they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. So basically, Beulah is the Hebrew word for married. Um, and in this verse, Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Israel, that saying, like, everyone thinks you're forsaken. It's interesting because, once again, these names come up. Like, they're calling you deserted. They're calling you desolate. But you will be called, the Lord delights in you, and your land will be called married. And so I was like, that's interesting. The land is married, or the land is being called married. Obviously, it's a metaphor, um, and I realized it's this metaphor of blessing, being chosen, being complete. And I felt God saying, I see you as married, metaphorically. <laughs> and it was very helpful because I realized what God was helping me do was separating my desire for marriage. You know, it's like a lot of us have these unfulfilled longings or desires, and that's something we wrestle with, we can bring to God, and we could probably preach a whole sermon on that in itself. 
But he was separating that from this shame that I felt about being single. The shame was something that he wanted to remove. You know, having an unfulfilled desire doesn't mean that you need to feel ashamed. So God said to me, I'm taking away that shame of singleness. I see you as married. I see you as honored. I see how you've honored me with your life. And I honor you in return. And you know, I realized something. I realized I've been looking at myself and seeing myself as single. But when God looks at me, he sees me as faithful. There are so many circumstances in life that can cause us to feel less than or overlooked by God. It could be singleness, widowhood, infertility, divorce, miscarriage. It could be not achieving the kind of career success we think we should have, not having those job opportunities open for us. Maybe we don't get into the school or the program we wanted to. Maybe our kids don't get into the school or program we wanted. And this voice comes along and taunts us saying, you're kind of worthless now. Or maybe not worthless, but worthless. But the truth is that God doesn't see it that way at all. God says, I see you. I see your faithfulness amidst the difficulty. And I honor you for that faithfulness. To God, the measure of our lives is not our external circumstances, but our faithfulness amidst those circumstances. In this story in Ruth, Naomi never gets a new husband. She was right about that. She never has any more sons. She was right about that too. But she was wrong about God forsaking her. God doesn't show up in this story through an angelic encounter or divine dream or divine whisper like he does many other places in the Old Testament. In this entire book, he doesn't speak at all. But you know where God shows up? Even here in chapter one, before Ruth meets Boaz, before Naomi gets her grandchildren and her happy ending, God shows up in Ruth, in Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi. Even before the marriage, even before the godly man comes into the picture, God is present, holding on to Naomi in the midst of her bitterness, holding on to her in the midst of her shame through Ruth. Now if you think about it, Ruth, was actually a widow just like Naomi. She was childless just like Naomi. Like Naomi, she was not associated with any man, and now she decides to become an immigrant and a foreigner in a nation that views her people group as cursed. Jason went into the history of that last week. It's, yeah, they really didn't like Moabites. She's the lowest of the low. She's just as powerless as Naomi. She carries just as much shame and stigma, but somehow Ruth does not succumb to bitterness. Ruth chooses faithfulness. Amidst, amidst her limitations, she does what she can. You know, she can't control what happens to Naomi, but she can make sure that Naomi is not alone. Ruth chooses radical faithfulness to the woman that is in front of her, and God uses it powerfully. Her choice to love Naomi changes Naomi's life. Ruth's quiet faithfulness becomes the vehicle for God's redemptive story. This morning, some of us may feel overlooked by God. Some of us may need to give ourselves permission to simply grieve and mourn or cry some tears, to verbalize our bitterness and confusion to God. Some of us need the reminder that God sees and knows every step of faithfulness we have taken in our lives. Even the small, quiet decisions we've made 
to honor him that other people don't see. He sees all of that, and he honors you. Your faithfulness means everything to him. Some of us need the reminder that whatever our limitations, whatever unfulfilled desires we're wrestling with, however society may view us, we have the opportunity to be faithful right where we are. And our faithfulness has the power to change lives. So I want to invite everyone to close your eyes right now. We're going to enter into a short time of prayer. But instead of me just praying and talking to God, we're going to give God some room to speak to us. So as you feel comfortable, I just invite you to ask God to remind you of a time when you chose faithfulness and God was proud of you. It could be something that happened this past week, this past year, or years ago. Perhaps it was just a small, quiet decision you made to love someone. Perhaps it was a sacrifice you made for God. Perhaps it was a big decision or a turning point for you. We'll just take a moment to give space for God to bring these things to mind and to remind us of how he sees us, of the way he cherishes these moments, moments that we might easily overlook. Now, as you feel comfortable, I invite you to ask God to bring to mind an opportunity in your life right now for you to choose love or to choose faithfulness. It could be a person in your life you have the opportunity to love. It could be a decision you have the opportunity to make. It could be a small, quiet thing or something bigger. Let's just take a moment to open ourselves to that invitation from God. God, I thank you that you are the one who sees us, who loves us, who knows us in every season, in every moment, in every moment of struggle and in every moment where we choose the best that we can choose and we're the best version of ourselves. God, I just pray that you would um, continue to open our eyes and our hearts to be more aware of where you are present in our lives, of the Ruths in our lives who are supporting us and loving us, of all the blessings that are within our reach. I pray that you would open our eyes, God, to those we have the opportunity to love. Would you continue to teach us the way of love, which is not forced, it's not a duty, but it's an opportunity we have to participate in the most beautiful thing that exists 
in the world. I thank you, God, that you are worthy of our love. You're worthy of our faithfulness. You're worthy of every sacrifice we make to you. We honor you in this place, God. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.